you would turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel to chapter 19, we'll continue to study 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 11 through 24, so we're going to conclude the chapter. Also, if you have a bookmark, uh, do turn to the 59th Psalm. It will be helpful to you this evening. This is a psalm that David wrote on the occasion of our text that we're going to study. The 59th Psalm. I love the tune that it's to. It's to a tune called Do Not Destroy, which makes perfect sense for the context that David is in in 1 Samuel 19.11. So, let's take up the word of God and read. Let's study it together. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, bring him, up, uh, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Nioth, and it was told to Saul, and It was told to Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers. And they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well, that is in Siku. And he asked, where is Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and and laid naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Thus far the word of the Lord our God, may he bless this reading of it. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding that, Lord, this history of your faithfulness 
might be for the sake of our good and the building up of our faith. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your help. Oh Lord, give us alert minds and receptive hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For God's people, the best course of action is the course of holiness rather than that of expedience. David was mighty. He was a great soldier. He was not only militarily effective, but personally mighty in his own warfare. And it doesn't take so much for us to think or maybe to ask the question, why didn't David just face the messengers of Saul sent to do him harm? If he can take down Goliath, certainly he can take down these men. But that's not what he does. He doesn't overcome his enemies, but rather he trusts in God. And he honors God's chosen king. And he looks to the Lord for deliverance rather than to his own ability. A moment ago I asked you to turn in Psalm 59 to this wonderful account that David gives as he sings unto the Lord. Is he in the closet hiding or is he on the road running or is it the first night after? We don't know. But one of the things he says in 59 verse 9 is this. Oh my strength. I will watch for you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress. And that's at the heart of David. A reliance on his God, on the love that God has pledged to him, and on his power. And so he can say of the Lord, you are my strength. You are my fortress. And so three things I want us to see this evening. The first is God's deliverance in a faithful wife. God's deliverance in a faithful wife, verses 11 through 13, and also 17. And then also in verses 14 through 16, God's deliverance in polite men. God's deliverance in polite men. And then in verses 18 through 24, God's deliverance in the spirit of prophecy. God's deliverance in the spirit of prophecy. As we come to this verse of scripture, we left off with the second occasion of Saul's attempt to kill David by pinning him to the wall with a spear. And it's significant and it's, it's really an insane act of King Saul, only motivated by his jealousy, with the desire to be the man to whom everyone would look rather than anyone looking to David for answers, for leadership, or for help. And in verse 11, we should assume that after he is left from Saul, that he goes straight to his home where he and Saul's daughter Michael were living. The text doesn't tell us that. We just find David at home in verse 11. And what we read is there David's interaction with the daughter of Saul his wife, the woman Michael, and she tells him of what's going on. Now, there's no great guess in our mind, there ought not be, that being the daughter of Saul, probably like lots of people in Israel, she knew that her father hated David. David knew it, Jonathan knew it, all of the advisors of the king, they knew it. And so now she looks at him and she specifically knows 
of a distinct plot that her father's planned to do David harm, to kill him. And she tells him in verse 11, uh, very simply, uh, that, uh, that Saul has sent messengers to their home and that the plan is specifically that they would take him and kill him. Now, one of the ancient church historians, Josephus, when he speaks about this, he has a different narrative in mind. He thinks that these men are sent to then take David and on the next day submit him to a judicial trial. But that's not what the Bible says. Now, these men have been commissioned by Saul to put David to death. They are there to catch him in the morning as soon as he comes out of the house and then to put him down. And what does she say to her husband? Well, she says this. If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. You got to leave now. You can't wait. If you're going to be alive, you better do it now because if you wait until morning, as soon as you leave the home and you don't have the cover of darkness, you're going to even be more exposed And these men are going to lay hands upon you. And so we read that she not only encouraged him to leave, but that this woman lowered him down out of a window. Now, as I studied this and tried to think in my own mind, the only thing I could come to was that this was a very strong woman. I don't know if you've ever lowered anybody by a rope. As a a kid, I tried to do it and always failed. And I can only imagine that as an adult... I would fail likewise, and the picture of Michael, the princess of Israel, lowering the great man and warrior, King David, out the window is a spectacular thing. But nonetheless, we read that it happened, and that also ought to take our minds to the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 25, where another Saul, who had become Paul, is in Damascus, and where Jews are out to kill him, and where his disciples lowered him in a basket out over a wall. But nonetheless, we have this wonderful act of this woman who was married to David and faithful to him and to her vows as a wife in Israel. As a woman under God, married to a man of God for the sake of God's people. Does she know David's station? Does she know the prophecy about David and his anointing? We don't know if she knows. However, we know that God used her for the deliverance of David. And then we come to her act of deception. And you look in, in the ESV, at least, it has a translation that tells us in verse 13 that Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And what does that mean? Uh, well, the word that the ESV translates as image can also be translated as household gods or an idol. Uh, In fact, it's the word teraphim. And you see it again earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. You see it in chapter 15. And in chapter 15, you may recall that that's where you have Samuel rebuking Saul for going against the Amalekites and then taking the best of the spoil for himself, even though the Lord said, devote it all to destruction. And you have this idolatry being listed there, the teraphim. And so it seems that whether Saul was already doing it or then learned it from those whom he conquered, 
Nonetheless, he became an idolater in the practical worship of his home. And there are a variety of other places that you see the same kind of thing. These household deities, these idols in the hands of the Israelites. I want to tell you that at minimum, at minimum, this is a breaking of the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, at minimum, because it is possible that these are images or idols that the people of Israel are producing against the word of God to the worship of Yahweh. That's possible. We have the account of... uh, of one man making for himself a household shrine and household gods and ordaining his son as a priest and placing an ephod upon him. And there's a lack of clarity of whether or not he's worshiping the God of Israel. Because at least the silver used to make these things was itself dedicated to the Lord, the God of Israel. But in any case, the thing I want to say to you is it is evidence of the spiritual decay of the people of Israel. Now, that's not the point of this passage. This is not here to teach us about the spiritual departure of the Israelites, but rather the faithfulness of God in using normal people for the deliverance of David and really unique circumstances for his delivery. And so she deceives. She takes this thing, however it looked. She put it in the bed. Apparently it's near the size of a man. She places goat's hair at its head so that when the men look in, they will be deceived. And it's effective because we're going to study in just a moment what we already have read, that she tells them he's sick, they look in, and then they leave and go back to Saul. So it works. But in verse 17, we look ahead just a little bit and we see the interaction of the wife of David, this woman, Michael, with her father, Saul. Saul comes to her and he asks her very pointedly, why have you deceived me? My enemy, he's been let go because of you. And now you have this wicked question. It really is a wicked question. David's done nothing against him. David's only ever been a friend and a subject of Saul. So why does this happen and how does she respond? Well, I want to tell you she should have responded by quoting Genesis 2.24. She should have responded by rebuking her father and say, quite simply, the Bible tells us to leave and to cleave. And it is a right thing for me to defend my husband, for we are one flesh... It's right for me to honor my husband. So, Father, back off. That's what she should have said. But instead, I think out of fear, she lies. And she says that David threatened her life. And so we have this account. And you've got questions and ethical questions that surround the passage of Scripture. Uh, Should she have lied for the deliverance of life? Almost everyone would say quite simply, yes. Should she have lied a second time to her father for the deliverance of her own life? Some ethicist would say it's quite normal, natural, and quite possibly permissible. But that's not at the heart of the passage of Scripture. The Scripture is testifying to the supernatural, providential deliverance of David, and in this instance, by the hands and the acts of his wife, Michael. 
God works in diverse and mysterious ways, as the hymn writer also testifies. Then you go on in verses 14 and 16, or 14 through 16, and you see God's deliverance in polite men. Now that sounds kind of strange. And I'll try to explain why I think that I can call these men polite, these messengers of David. One thing I think we have to ask is who are these guys? Who are these messengers? If you look at the actual word in Hebrew, it's, it's the simple word that sometimes, and well, usually is applied also to angels, but it can likewise be applied to king's heralds, people that go before a king or an army who testify to things. And so these men actually bear up an office. They have a, a, a specific use. They're not just anybody, but I also want to say they're not soldiers. They're not soldiers. We'd be told that. They're not warriors of the army of Israel. No, they have a different fact, uh, use entirely. But one of the things that I think a fair reading of the passage of Scripture is that they have been taken and used by Saul to be covert operators, to be men, like a special force in essence, to go and to do silent missions. They're They're guys that people wouldn't expect would come after David. It's not like a garrison of troops have surrounded his home. No, these are men that do an entirely different thing. They seem to be mouthpieces of the king, but here they're actually hands with daggers for the king. And in verse 11, we know specifically that they weren't just there to arrest David, but that they were absolutely commissioned to slay him, to kill him. And that's a really tall order. And especially for somebody, if we can think for a moment, is just a messenger. Why would you send messengers, heralds, to kill the guy who slayed Goliath and then 200 Philistines and a whole host of other enemies? These are trained men. They have the acts of violence on their hands in training. I just want to say that. That seems to be who they are. Well, in verse 14, we read that these men come, and assuming that it's when the morning has come, uh, these men go into the home, and they ask and say to her, Michael, where is David? And she tells them very simply, he is sick. Now, the assumption is that they've looked in, they've seen these things, And then they leave and report to Saul. Because in one moment, these men are standing in the house of David. And in the very next verse, they are standing before Saul, who is not there. He's not there yet, at least. And so they go and they tell to Saul, well, he's sick. And then Saul's response tells us a lot. That it seems as if these men have refused to kill David because he's sick. And Saul's response goes like this. Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. It's almost as if the guys are saying, we don't want to touch him. Who would kill a weak and sick man? We don't want to do it. And Saul says, well, if you won't do it, pick up the bed, bring him to me, and I'll drive it into his chest. Let me do it. So there's this sensibility in these men that 
Well, if they're trained, if they are covert warriors of a sort, does not make much sense, but nonetheless is used by God. They were commissioned to kill. They seem to have refused to kill. And yet, the politeness of their hearts will not allow them to. And so, as they go and they see that David's sick, they go back to Saul and return once again to find the idol and the goat's hair laying in the bed. It gives time and the opportunity for David to gain some distance from his pursuers. And in all this, God delivered David. He's got a head start. He's been able to go and to gain distance. And here it is by simple, wonderful use of God's providence. This again is his sovereign hand at work in a normal situation to deliver his servant. Then we go on and we come to God's deliverance in the spirit of prophecy. Now this has already been a strange passage of scripture. A whole lot of 1 Samuel seems to have been already. But we see David and he's left. He's fled. And where does he go? Well, if we don't look ahead, we don't peek at verses 18 through 23 or 24, we might make different assumptions. We might think, well, if I was David and I've got men trying to kill me, my wife's lowered me out of the window and I made it away, maybe I'd go home, a stronghold, a place where I've got family, people that could support me and help defend me. That's not where David goes. Does he go to his legion of soldiers that he's been put in charge of? No. Does he go to any of those cities that sang the praises of David and whose women came out in praise of him as he passed by with Saul? So that he could raise up his own force or take his own city or become a king unto himself. No, he doesn't do any of those things. What does he do? Well, he goes and relies upon God. How? Well, he goes and visits Samuel, the prophet of God, in verse 18. It's very simple. That's the testimony. He fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah. That's where Samuel has put up a home and begun a ministry. And as he goes to Samuel, he tells him all that Saul has done. And it tells us that he and Samuel went and lived in Nioth. In Nioth, it's just a place, it seems. And so this comes back and it's told to David. It seems that Saul's got, or sorry, it's told to Saul. It seems that Saul has ears everywhere. He's got eyes. He's got people that report to him. And... This is what he hears. Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. And so, once again, verse 20, Saul does what? Well, he sends out these messengers. These men who are about more than just going and telling David something. And he sends one group. And as they approach to Nioth, they encounter this company of prophets. And what are they doing? They're prophesying. They're speaking forth the glories of God in the Spirit. And what do they see also? They see Samuel standing as head over them. It's almost like this face-off. This spiritual face-off. You've got these men. They're, they don't, they're not holding weapons. Except the weapon of the word 
of God. And what happens to these men? Well, we're told that as they see this, that the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and that they also prophesied. Now, this is supernatural. This isn't normal. This isn't that they just sat and listened to the sermon. No, they're overcome by the power of the Holy Ghost. And they in themselves become mouthpieces for the Lord. It's not that they're babbling in an insanity. No, rather they're overcome with the telling forth of the mysteries and the glories of God. Now that's the first group. So what does Saul do? Well, if you fail once, you just do the same thing again. He sends the second group. And the same thing happens. And he sends a third group and the same thing happens once again. And so you've got this significant thing. We don't know if it's one, two, three, fifteen messengers. But we've got three waves of messengers of Saul overcome by the Holy Spirit standing with Samuel and with the prophets prophesying. Verse 22 we read Saul's next act would be to take it into his own hands. He's already tried that once. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where is Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And he went there at Ni- to Nioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. And so the picture's made even more clear. It's not just that these men are overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, but they're so overwhelmed that they throw themselves to the ground and take their clothes off their bodies. And it's a really, well, uh, visible account given here in the Scriptures. And it's strange and it's unique. But one of the things that I think can just simply be said is that... Man's best laid plans in the face of a sovereign God come to nothing. How great are you? How powerful can you be in the face of the God of heaven? And so, we can hear the words of David in the 59th Psalm, verse 9, once again. As he speaks and calls God this, he says, Oh my strength, that's what he calls God, my strength. I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. God used the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophecy, to make wicked men set for murder become prophets of the Most High God. This is significant. And I won't try to explain to you the inner workings of this because I have no idea how to do it. But I know that this is true. That in all this, God delivered David. And that God delivers all of those who put their trust in him. He delivers by normal providential circumstances of a faithful wife keeping her vows or by an effective deception and polite men being used for the deliverance or even by the sending and the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person to make a wicked man into a quivering mess on the ground for the deliverance of those whom the Lord loves. 
the thing that we should go away from the simply understanding is that God's ways are not our ways. David could have raised his hand. He could have killed Saul. But that wasn't his aim. His aim was obedience to God. David continued to pursue holiness rather than expedience. To pursue the power of God rather than the power of his arm. And this wonderful thing that he testifies to later continues. For Samuel 26 verse 9 continues here. Do not kill him, the Lord's anointed. No one has ever attacked the Lord's anointed and remained free of guilt. His heart is simply to be holy. So what do I encourage you to, Christian? In any of life's difficulties and even in the dangers of life, we don't look to ourselves, but we look to whatever it is that is the most holy and obedient thing to the word of God. And we pursue that. We don't pursue the things that we can come up with. We pursue it and let him be the one who wages warfare. So that we might with David say what he does in Psalm 59 verse 10. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph over my enemies. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your constant hand, for your power, for your providence. Oh Lord, for the sending of your Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding and that Lord, you would give us stronger faith in you. Not because of the things we would want you to do, but God, because of the things that you have done and the things that you have promised to do. Oh Father in heaven, we pray that you would In every way, deliver us from the hand of wicked men. Deliver us from your wrath and secure us in the blood of your Holy Son. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.